This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. James Nestor is a journalist and the author of the best-selling Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art. He spent 10 years investigating the practice at the core of what keeps us alive, a seemingly simple practice that we all take for granted. What he learned is that more than 90% of us are doing it wrong to significant effect. Poor breathing leads to poor health. In short, breath is at the center of why so many of us are sick and tired. And while the book is filled with groundbreaking and ancient science, it almost reads like an adventure novel. It's funny, captivating, and a page-turner that I could not put down. Today, we talk about why our respiratory health is the most accurate marker of longevity, how we're all breathing incorrectly every single day, and the ailments that improved breath function can fix and the damage it can potentially reverse. The science is there. The data is there. So it just shows you how capable the human body is of change if we get the right environmental inputs. And in my opinion, breathing is probably the most important thing to take care of at the beginning. You build upon a foundation of healthy breathing, then you can get into your exercise, then you can get into your eating right. But you have to be breathing right first. Okay, let's get to my chat with James Nestor. So I have to admit, I got the first bound of your book at the beginning of COVID, and then I circled it with a lot of trepidation for many months because I am a chronic hyperventilator, which you obviously write about extensively. And the more awareness I bring to my breath, the more inclined I am to hyperventilate. And so I had to build up all of my courage to read your book. And then I loved it. It's so fun. Who thought anyone could write such a fun book about breathing? 
So good job. Nice job. Snaps for that. Well, thank you very much. It's truly delightful and funny and really engaging and fascinating. And so let's start, I guess, with sort of the the general premise of the book, which is that 90% of us are breathing incorrectly. So I would even estimate that it might be even higher than that, at least from the breathing therapist that I've talked to. And it turns out that so much of this is not only tied to environmental inputs, to anxiety, to pollution, but to our evolution. Our faces have been developing in ways that are extremely deleterious to our health. And when I discovered this, I just thought it was so fascinating and so strange that I'd never heard about it before. Yeah. And isn't that, I love sort of that exchange that you had. I can't remember who you were talking to about that, but this idea that we are not only, we're not necessarily evolving to be better, but this has been an evolutionary process that is damaging to our health. Like, do we know why? I mean, is it just the impact of stress and the fact that we're so resilient, we can survive even when we're breathing so improperly? Our bodies do a very good job at compensating for stress, for injuries, for whatever. They do a very good job at keeping us alive, but that doesn't mean we're healthy. Right. And so there's this extreme disconnect in, in medicine. They figure just because you're breathing, you're okay. But it's how we breathe that is so important to our longevity, to our endurance, to our sleep, to our mental health. I mean, on and on and on. And it turns out that if you looked at an ancient skull, anything older than about 400 years old, on back to a million years old and even before that, all of our ancestors had perfectly straight teeth. And we had these very forward growing faces, which meant we had more room in our airways, which meant we breathed better. And modern skulls are the exact opposite. This is why we have crooked teeth, because our mouths have grown so small that they have nowhere to, to go. Teeth just have to grow and crook it. That means we have a smaller airway. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in college I had, which was a zillion years ago for me, I had always <laughs> learned that evolution was the survival of the fittest. We're just getting better. Animals are getting better, better, better. That is complete garbage. So evolution means change. And if you look at the human species right now, if you think that all of these diseases that we have and everything that's happening to our bodies, if you think that this is improvement, you're, you're sadly mistaken. And people who study this know this. There's no controversy about it. It just doesn't seem to have filtered out to the general public. Right. And this idea, I mean, you talk about it affecting weight loss, cl- clearly anxiety and depression, sort of any factor of health, right? And certainly longevity. Now there's this idea that lung capacity, I don't know if it does it cause longevity or that the two are highly correlated that those who sort of breathe best through the nose, I'll add, tend to live the longest? These researchers have been running this study that's been going on for about 70 years. It's called the Framingham study. And they found that the most accurate marker of health and longevity wasn't genes, wasn't even cardiovascular health. It was lung capacity, and respiratory health. So the larger your lungs were, the better those lungs worked, the longer you were going to live. That's what the data said. So when we age, our lungs will start shrinking. It's very sad what happens after about 30. You know, we lose bone mass, we lose lung capacity, but we can reverse that and we can reverse it through breathing correctly. 
So it's a bummer to learn that our bodies are just constantly going through this entropy as we get older, but it's also very inspiring, at least to me, to learn that we can take control of that and, and reverse it and really improve ourselves at any age. Yeah. And obviously throughout the book, I mean, the best part is obviously that you use yourself as a guinea pig and go and see all these and explore these methods for breathing and lung expansion. And what inspired you? I mean, it seems like you have chronic sleep apnea. And I know you had sort of you start the book with this almost mystical experience of breathing in this cold room and sweating. But what what was the genesis? Like what what was it that really pushed you over the edge to clearly devote like a lot of money and many years of your life to this pursuit? Well, I I take health pretty seriously. I exercise all the time. I was boxing, grappling, surfing. I was eating all the right foods. I was sleeping my super eight hours every night and I kept getting sick. And I kept having respiratory problems, bronchitis, pneumonia, wheezing. And I was told by some people that, oh, you're just getting older. This is what happens. But then you look around and other people don't have these problems. Why am I having these problems? So my doctor suggested I see a, a breathing therapist. And I go to a breathing class. And I did that. I took this weekend workshop. It was okay, you know, but I wasn't super impressed until I went back several weeks later for a follow-up session and walked into this old Victorian house, sat down in this corner, crossed my legs and breathed in this rhythmic pattern and just started sweating. Unlike anything I've ever experienced in my life. I mean, my hair was sopping wet. My t-shirt was wet. There's sweat blotches on my jeans. And I went back to my doctor and I said, what happened? You're a doctor. And she had no idea what happened. She tried to pretend that I had a fever or the room was too hot, none of which were true at all. But it got me thinking about breathing. If breathing can elicit something so powerful as that, what else can it do? And where things really opened up for me is when I was sent on assignment with Outside Magazine to write about free divers, people who have mastered the art of breathing so well that they can hold their breath for seven, eight, nine minutes at a time and dive down to depths of 300, 400 feet on a single breath of air. I said, okay, this is supposed to be scientifically impossible, but these people are doing this stuff every day. So where else can breathing take us? What else can it show us about ourselves and about our potential? And so I went out in the field and spent several years with the top researchers at top universities and uncovered something that was just as wild and as weird as anything I've ever written about before. Which was just sort of this art of being able to control your body through your breath. Not only that, but the fact that we're doing this so terribly and nobody is talking about it. So when you go to your doctor, I mean, think about it. Maybe they'll take your blood pressure. Maybe they'll look at cortisol levels. Maybe they'll listen to your heart. Maybe they'll ask about migraines or sleep. But they won't ask about how you're breathing. They won't look at the ways in which you're breathing, even though how you breathe affects all of those things. It is equally as important as what you eat and how much you exercise. And again, as I had found, you can exercise all you want. You can eat paleo or keto or vegan or vegetarian or pescatarian, whatever. But if you're not breathing properly, you're never, ever going to be healthy. And that was something that was shocking to me because I thought that breathing was this very simple binary act. You either do it or you don't do it. But it's not. It's, it's a very subtle, sophisticated process. And 
the ways in which you do it can really help you control your, your health, your immune function, your mental function, and more. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. And, and then how did you, was this sort of like a referral upon referral be, in terms of how you started to find all of these experts who sort of focus on these different, these different parts like Lynn Martin and the Schroth method. And like, how did you begin this voyage? Was it just sort of like following lead after lead after lead? I began it with a nonfiction book proposal. And that's how you start a nonfiction book. So you spend (laughs) about six, six months writing very detailed chapter synopsis overviews, who you're going to talk to, what you're going to be talking about. And you sell that. So it's very different than fiction where you write a fiction book and then you sell it and that's it. So they buy this proposal and I had thought I had this world totally figured out. I talked to all the right people. And then once I really started getting in many layers deep into it, I had to throw out six months of work, my entire proposal and start all over again because the real story was so much deeper than anything that I'd researched before. So, you know, this book took a long time, way too long. It was <laughs> extremely difficult. If I hadn't had breathing, you know, in the background, I don't know if I would have made it. But it's just being, I was so curious in, in the subject. It wasn't like I would just clock on for six hours and work and then clock off. Every night I was reading books about breathing. I was talking to researchers. I'm lucky enough to be close to Stanford, one of the top research institutions in the world. And I got to know the chief of rhinology research there, the people in sleep medicine, and they were just referring me to one person to the other. So I had like this murder wall in my office of 300 different notes that could lead me to 300 different ways to try to really get into this subject. And that's what I spent years and years doing. Like all of these things, what's sort of most amazing about it is that this is all sort of ancient knowledge and that was buried over time, right? As you mentioned, it's only really in the last 400 years that our faces have started to sort of cave in on themselves, but that you talk about how mothers and tribes would pinch their baby's lips closed after each feeding and that as they'd watch them sleep and gently pinch their mouth shut just to train them and and nostril breathing, right? So this idea, do you think that's the most essential health tenant is that if we just shut our mouths, that that's, that's the place to start? I know it's far more complex than that. It's absolutely the first place to start. And I was amazed to be researching in medical libraries and finding these ancient systems of breathing, like breathing to 
Every major ancient culture was an essential pillar of health. And they wrote about it extensively. There were directions. This goes back 4,000 years, almost 5,000 years. And as I was reading this about in ancient Hindu texts, I was like, oh, this is super interesting. You know, yoga, this is where all yoga comes from breathing. Before there was vinyasa flow and all that, yoga was the art of sitting down and breathing, period. No, no poses, no flowing. And, and so from that, I found that Chinese medicine was finding the exact same thing and naming it different names, but they came to the same conclusions using breath holds, slow breathing, over breathing on occasion to activate your nervous system. And I thought it was totally fascinating that so many of these methods now have been measured in labs and found that they absolutely do so much of what the ancients were saying they did. The ancients didn't have pulse oximeters, you know, and fMRIs, but they had a lot of time to sit around and see what was working and what wasn't and to write about these processes. So it really feels like now there is this rebirth, this rediscovery of these systems that have worked for so long, that have been a part of our cultural fabric for so long, but that for some reason have been forgotten in the last few hundred years. And I love this idea. I mean, I was inspired to buy tape. I haven't actually put it on my mouth, but do you still tape your mouth shut at night? So this sounded completely insane when I first heard about it. And I had the misfortune of then going on YouTube and exploring <laughs> mouth taping. So people don't, don't, don't go on YouTube for, for anything to begin with. And especially don't go on it for, for medical advice on how to tape your mouth while sleeping. So I thought it was just this completely flaky, sketchy thing until I was at Stanford and I walked down the hall from the chief rhinologist's office and I started talking to the doctor of speech language pathology, Ann Kearney. And I said, have you heard of this stuff? It's, it's sleep tape and you put it on your mouth and it's supposed to make you nasal breathe at night. And I was kind of laughing about it until she said, oh, of course, I prescribe this to all my patients. And wow. there are so many other doctors who prescribe this as well. Because if you're breathing for two-thirds of the day through your nose, that's great. It's a good first start. If you go to bed at night, and if you're like me, and your mouth just gently cranes open the moment you go unconscious, that's awful. That's a third of your life you're breathing through the mouth. And there's so much damage you're doing to your body by breathing through the mouth. I went over that extensively in the book. And again, no one's, no one's arguing this. It's just so few people realize it. 25 to 50% of the population right now, that's the estimate, are chronic mouth breathers. And so, and, and some of the things that happen beyond sort of like what's happening to the shape of our mouth, the obstruction of our airways, and the nose is sort of a filter too, right? Like it's the way of, of warming breath, filtering breath, et cetera? Like what are the mechanisms that make it so much more, is it primarily just to retain the shape of your face? No, no that, that isn't the primary purpose of the nose. When we're young and developing, if we chronically mouth breathe, our faces will develop differently. We'll have more of a recessed chin. Our head will slink forward. This is so common that researchers have a name for it. They call it adenoid face. Because when adenoids get inflamed, it's hard to breathe through the nose. So people adapt by breathing through their mouth. But the nose is our first line of defense. So the nose will filter particulate. It will heat air. It will moisten air. It will pressurize air. And it will condition it so that by the time it enters our lungs, our lungs can so much more easily 
absorb that oxygen. So if you were to take a billiard ball and jam it in the middle of your face, that's the equivalent volume of everything that's happening in your nose. Air is forced through this gauntlet of different structures. It's completely amazing to me. And it looks like a seashell. So it gets its name nasal concha because if you sliced a human head in half, and I've seen my own head sliced in half in a, in a CAT scan, it looks like we have these, these shells on the sides of our faces. And mm. animals use these shells to keep invaders out, to keep problems out, pollution out. We do the same thing. So the nose has innumerable functions, and especially now in COVID, it's essential to breathe through your nose. And again, this is something that just so few people know about, and I certainly had never heard about until I was working down at Stanford and lurking, learning all about this. Yeah. I mean, the irony is that my dad is a pulmonologist, which mm -hmm. should make everyone laugh, and I'm a, a horrible breather. But again, like, you know, I was treated for subtle asthma. I exercise induced asthma, et cetera. But I've struggled with my breath throughout my life. And when I get into a period of hyperventilation, it I I do it for months. I can go for literally months of every afternoon I'm yawning and the sensation you describe it in the book. And apparently I'm not alone. Many, many, many people do this is that my lungs are over full and, but I have the sensation of not being able to take a deep breath. And so it was so helpful just to read. I think it was Lynn Martin and Buteco, but this idea of like really just forcing the exhale and emptying all of the air out of my lungs into my belly. And in your experience, having sort of trained yourself like an athlete and breathing for I don't even know how many years this took you, how long does it typically take for someone to sort of inherently deeply change that the way that they breathe, whether it's you know, only breathing through their nose at night or learning how to fully exhale? So my father-in-law is a pulmonologist. <laughs> so, so he helped me out throughout this whole process. And this writing this book took years. And what was most fascinating to me is I would be finding this research that was conducted at Harvard or Stanford or Yale, legitimate research, right? Top scientific journal stuff i'd send it to him and he kept saying he's like wow i've never heard of that wow i've never heard it wow this is blowing my mind. i've never heard of that because the job of a pulmonologist and he's so good at what he does right yeah. he deals with pathologies so he's dealing with people who just got in a car accident and exactly. need their lungs removed he's dealing with people who are so sick that they need some sort of serious surgical intervention or they need serious drugs. So when I asked him, I said, well, you're a pulmonologist. What's the perfect way to breathe? He said, perfect way to breathe is, is to breathe. What are you talking about? It doesn't matter what the... <laughs> and this guy is at the top of his field. So at the end of this process, he was pretty bitter. He's like, why haven't I learned this in medical school? Because he read every line of this book. He looked at all of the studies. You know, This was looked at by 12 different doctors. And, and he was pretty shocked, but this is not pointing fingers at anyone. These guys do amazing work. If I'm in a car accident or if I have some serious injury to my lung, I'm not going to do buteco and I'm not going to go and meditate. I'm going to go to the hospital and have yeah. these guys fix me. So I'm a huge fan of Western medicine, but for these chronic lower grade problems, with, which is exactly what the majority of the population is now contending with, 
our healthcare system is pretty bad at it. We have palliative care. So if you have asthma, it's like here's a bronchodilator, oral steroid. Those work great to abate the symptoms of these problems, but they do nothing for the core issue. So this is where breathing really comes in because so many of these problems are tied to chronic dysfunctional breathing. And if you fix the breathing, I've seen this hundreds and hundreds of times, talked to so many researchers who have so many case studies and, and legitimate studies and randomized controlled studies of this, you can really change these conditions in some significant ways. Sometimes people no longer suffer from these chronic problems that they'd had for decades and decades. Yeah. I mean, the stories in the book are are minor miracles to extreme miracles. And and often, as we as we all know, these chronic conditions can be quite complex also in the way that they show up. So for me, when I start hyperventilating, it's it's tied to fatigue, sleep deprivation, stress, et cetera. And then it kicks it all up. So then my anxiety just goes off the charts because not only am I dealing with the stress of daily life, but I feel like I'm slowly dying and suffocating, which is obviously the opposite of what's happening. But it is it's sort of an interesting study and in our body as this complex organism where all of these different factors drive different symptoms that all make sense also together. But when I was young and dealing with this, it was so frustrating. because It was like, oh, it's all in your head. And I'm like, but it has a physical effect on my body and my energy. So anyway, that was my minor diatribe. But I also thought it was fascinating, too, and I'm hoping you can, in the context particularly of sort of anxiety and depression and um, asthma sufferers, can you talk a bit about Alicia Murray's study at SMU and sort of this idea of tracking carbon dioxide and carbon dioxide actually maybe being the more important measure of our health? Sure. And your your story, by the way, is is not unique. I've heard this from so many people. <laughs> I've probably gotten like, you know, 600 emails in the last couple months <laughs> of people saying this exact same thing because the way our system is set up, it's not really set up to, to help people like you until you get really sick. Just like with sleep apnea, you can snore and have sleep apnea, but once you're really sick and about to die, that's when you can get treatment. That does not seem like a good approach. You know, preventative (laughs) maintenance seems to make a lot more sense to me. So Alicia Moret, who got her doctorate at Stanford, also worked at the Harvard Neuroscience Neurology Lab, very well-known, well-respected researcher, started these studies where she said, I'm going to take these huge groups of panic sufferers, and I'm also going to take these uh, huge groups of asthmatics. And I'm just going to get them to breathe differently. And this was a National Institutes of of Health study. So legit stuff. And so over four weeks, she had them bring this, carry around this little capnometer, which was gauging their carbon dioxide. So when we breathe too much, we offload too much carbon dioxide. We need a balance of CO2 and oxygen in our bodies to operate properly. When you're over breathing, you're going to feel lightness in your head, some tingling in your fingers. That's because a lack of circulation is occurring in those areas. So breathing too much actually inhibits oxygen from going throughout your body, which is amazing, but that's absolutely how it works. So just by training these people to breathe less, within a few weeks, panic sufferers, chronic panic sufferers, weren't having any panic attacks. 
After the study ended, two months later, something like 68% were no longer having panic attacks. A year after the study ended, 96% said they were either much improved or very much improved. And the same exact thing happened with asthmatics. So if this stuff is all in someone's head, how does it explain the differences in lung function and CO2 tolerance? So it's that, that is such a demeaning thing to say to someone because this stuff can be measured and top researchers have been measuring it. So that's a long way of saying all of these slow breathing methods, these breath holding methods that have been around for thousands of years absolutely work because they allow you to get more comfortable with a slight increase of CO2, which increases circulation, which calms your body, calms your mind, and allows you to take control of the situation. So the other, not this one, obviously, is personal to me as well, but my son is a mouth breather and his adenoids are obstructing his airways. And now we're doing a sleep study and he's and he's getting sort of that adenoid base, et cetera. But the conversation, and, and I love sort of this, the, was it Dr. Gelb? Is he the dentist who's mm-hmm. seeing all these sort of fit, successful mid-30s women who are having fatigue, bowel issues, headaches, et cetera, and that it, it's Mew, right, that talks about, or talked, or I guess he's, he's passed, but this idea, too, that orthodontia, or this idea that we've removed teeth in order to make room for others has been the wrong response, and that we have to find ways to expand mouths and jaws through chewing, through... I'm so happy that you love chewing gum because I also love chewing gum. I'm so happy to hear that it's so good for me. But can you talk a bit about the jaw expansion that's possible Mm -hmm. that people thought was not possible after 30? Sure. So John Mew is still alive. He's 91 and still feisty as ever. Amazing guy. I talked to him recently. And Mike, Michael Gelb told me something. He's a well-known airway specialist, dentist. He's been in this field. He's on the board of every imaginable organization to do with this stuff. And he said, we are going to look back in 10 years and be absolutely horrified with what we've done to ourselves. And what he was talking about is fixed orthodontics. So this is something John Mew has been talking about since the 60s. And even before John Mew, 100 years ago, people were talking about this. So the the problem here is that when we have crooked teeth, crooked teeth are caused by a mouth that is too small for its face. Everyone agrees on that. So the way that we used to fix crooked teeth is we would expand the mouth. And I know this sounds gnarly, but it's not. What they did is they expanded the mouth to the way it was supposed to have been before all this evolutionary change made our mouths too small. So by expanding the mouth, you create a larger playing field for teeth to naturally grow in straight. But here's something else. By expanding the mouth, you also create more room in the airway so you can breathe better. And I can't tell you how many people I've talked to and how many researchers who have been working on this, dentists who have been doing these procedures, people came in with sleep apnea, with allergies, with asthma. Two months later, it was all gone because they can breathe properly and their facial structure changes too. So when you think about kids now, 
almost every kid is born with a mouth that's too small for its face, right? And when you have that mouth that's too small, adenoids can get inflamed and people have allergic reactions. And it's the natural thing to have adenoids removed. And that can work really well at the beginning. Same thing with tonsils. But as the years go by, you still have a mouth that's too small for its face. So the problems associated with that can just come back. So the, the core problem, if you're not looking at the core problem, which is that humans have a mouth too small for our faces nowadays, you're always going to have downstream issues from this. And what compounds this is that, and I'm not saying this is my opinion, I am an objective reporter, but I spent years in this field and talked to the top researchers doing this work is they believe that by extracting teeth, especially when we're young, by using headgear, by using braces, you are making a small mouth smaller. And making that small mouth smaller will take that airway and make it even smaller. Guess what happens after that? Sleep apnea, snoring, you're more apt to get asthma, allergies, and all the rest. So there's a huge body of research showing this. And Dr. Gelb is one of the people who fixes these people who have had four teeth extracted, who are, you know, ass kickers in New York, the the top of the food chain and in finances, and yet they're practically dying because they're so sick because they can't breathe properly. Mm. It's amazing and so and so simple, but not easy, right? I mean, it's we do the simplest things. <laughs> so many of oh. us would rather have like a surgery than I, I feel this resistance in myself. I'm like, oh, if I could just learn how to breathe, and yet I could just learn how to breathe. But but some of these <laughs> procedures, what what's fascinating to me, I was just talking to somebody else about this. She said that. She's like, oh, I've had braces three times and for a couple of years each. <laughs> that yeah. seems crazy to me because what keeps, you know, you keep straightening the teeth, but the problem is, is deeper than that. If these procedures in which they expand the upper palate of the mouth, again, that seems gnarly, but what's even more gnarly to me is to extract teeth and to make a small mouth smaller and to ruin your breathing. So if, if you look at those two options, it's like, hmm, do I permanently want to want to fix myself Or do I want to keep repairing myself and fixing the symptoms associated with having a mouth that's too small? So again, as a reporter, as a journalist, I try to stay out of this. It's a very (laughs) contentious field. But if you look at the science, if you think about how physics works, and if you look at these people who have been studying this stuff for decades, the answer is very clear to me. And I loved beyond sort of the tactical parts of the book, which get into various methods or lung stretching for scoliosis or or mouth expansion, et cetera, was just the fact that obviously you got into to breath as prana, right? And this idea of our ability to to use the breath to control our bodies in ways that we would love to believe are not possible. We're big we did a segment of the Goop Lab on Netflix with Wim Hoff, who I know you ventured around with like one of the greatest characters of all time and you write about sort of Rama and his ability to send his heart up and down and can you sort of talk about that this idea of of breath as this the animating force in our lives and the fact that we don't really consciously direct it but it it has in some ways limitless power so we know that breathing can help I found it fascinating that we can use simple breathing methods to take control of our blood pressure, even our heart rate, the emotional centers in the brain. We can use it for athletic endurance and all that's great. And 
this stuff is so easy to measure that you can actually see these changes occurring in your body as you breathe in different ways. But what really blew my mind was that people were using different breathing techniques to overcome quote unquote incurable diseases to do totally impossible things. One story I found about a hundred years ago, this woman in Germany, Katerina Schroth had been born with scoliosis and she'd been told like, you're going to live your life in bed. Here's your wheelchair. See you later. But she had different views about the human body's potential. So she started something called orthopedic breathing, where she would stretch, breathe into one lung, stretch again, breathe into the other. And she breathed her spine straight again. And she mm. went on to teach this to hundreds and hundreds of other women that hospitals had totally given up on. There are pictures of this. There's x-rays. There's all of that. These women were so crouched over that they couldn't look up and no one knew what to do with them. And while Schroth was training these, these poor women, she was repeatedly derided by the medical institutions that she wasn't qualified, that what she was doing was quackery, yada, yada. She kept doing what she did because it worked. And at the end of her life, she was awarded a medal by the German government for her contributions to medicine. So this stuff <laughs> can take a long time to sink in. And they're still using the Schroth method. It's not fun, but you know, either is scoliosis and it absolutely works. So how you breathe affects your posture and your posture affects how you breathe. And it can also impact your immune function. Uh, another thing that was extraordinary, you just mentioned Wim Hof, who I speak to some semi-often, amazing dude. I'm so <laughs> happy that like breathing is his thing and like religion isn't his thing. Because if he was a religious guy, we would all be just bowing down to him. He's so charismatic. But it's one thing to like sit in ice baths and, you know, break 26 Guinness Book World Records. That's all cool. But his work with people with autoimmune diseases, with MS, with diabetes, hypertension, other issues, and how these people who had been essentially left to be hopeless, learned his breathing regimen, started taking cold showers, and they no longer had these problems they'd have for decades. And again, that the science is there, the data is there. So it just shows you how capable the human body is of change if we get the right environmental inputs. And in my opinion, breathing is probably the most important thing to take care of at the beginning. You build upon a foundation of healthy breathing, then you can get into your exercise, then you can get into your eating right. But you have to be breathing right first. And then you can get into sort of like the, is it hypoventilation and Timo breathing and those things that are so extreme, but that can allow the body to do sort of go beyond what its practical limits. So what I try to do in the book is start with the bummer stuff. It's like, okay, <laughs> we're, we're completely messed up and I'm more messed up than, than most people. I broke my nose three times, you know, had all of this, all of these airway issues. My sinuses are messed up, all of that. But the point was to establish what has gone wrong with us so then we can fix it. So the middle of the book is like, here is stuff that everybody can benefit from. doesn't matter if you're an extreme athlete or an asthmatic or you have anxiety or whatever. 
So that is breathing through the nose and breathing through the nose as often as you can. That's breathing slowly, it's breathing less, it's chewing more because chewing actually increases blood flow to the brain. It can help build new bone in your face and it can help tone your airways to make you breathe more easily. But towards the end of the book, I was like, okay, there are these more extreme people using these more extreme methods which are really effective for people with either severe problems or with people who really want to go up that next rung of human potential. And so that's where Wim Hof fits in. That's where Swami Rama, this guy that <laughs> you, you mentioned him a little bit, could change the temperature on one hand 11 degrees by just breathing and thinking about it and could flutter his heart at 300 beats per minute with breathing. So if we have the capabilities of doing this, and this was all recorded by a Navy physicist, it was reported in the New York Times, it happened. It just made me think, what else are we missing out on? Yeah. You know, What else is the human body capable of? It's capable of healing itself and it's capable of heating itself up during cold nights and, and so much more. And that's where I start to get really excited. Our ancestors knew all about this stuff. This is how they survived. But so much of that ancient knowledge has been lost and the new science is rediscovering it and finding that, you know, we can do miraculous right. things. And the thing that I love about Wim and theoretically about about Rama even is, you know, Wim's point is, yes, I have 26 world records and I'm the I'm a maniac. However, I can teach other people how to do this. And, you know, the study that he did where they shot him full of endotoxins and he was able to rally his immune system to fight it off and then taught other people to do that as well is astounding. You know, I think typically we look at people like Rama as aberrations and certainly like Wim and Rama are unusual specimens, but it doesn't mean it's it's sort of like saying, oh, there's a black swan, therefore black swans can't exist. You know, it's sort of this, like, it, it is a testament to what's possible, not something that we should ignore. It sort of reminds me, I don't know if you read, I'm so obsessed with this book, but Jeffrey Rediger's book, Cured, because essentially he looks at spontaneous healings and remissions, and he's like, we're so quick to just be like, this was a fluke, an outlier. It's irrelevant, where instead of looking to these people for clues as to what's possible, even if it's not as tidy as we might want it to be. In Wim's breathing technique, he's the first one to admit this is ancient stuff. He just put his name on it, but this stuff has been around for a long time. And I thought it was fascinating to go back and, and look at the record, and it's, it's a form of tumo breathing, which is how the monks kept themselves warm in the, in the, in the wintertime. They could sit outside at night and melt a circle around themselves and then go back into the monastery and go on with their days by breathing. Of course, this sounds impossible, right? No one's going to believe it until Herbert Benson at Harvard Medical School went up to Dharamsala in India, found these monks and found that they could do exactly the same thing. But just as you had been saying, they look kind of weird, you know, these sweaty dudes with these <laughs> robes. And to Westerners, we're just like, these guys are freaks of nature. Forget about it. Wim rolls around, they start shooting him up with, with E. coli, he doesn't suffer any symptoms from it, and they just say, oh, you're a you're weirdo like Swami Rama, like these Tuma monks. And he said, well, why don't we test it? So he gathered uh, a group of people, then they had a control group, and for four days, he put these random people, had never done any of this stuff before, for four days he trained them 
They brought him into the lab. They shot him in, shot him up with E. coli, which causes extreme nausea, headaches, sweatings, and, and, and all of that. And none of these people suffered from any of the symptoms, whereas the control group suffered terribly from these problems. So that's his real gift to the world. And that, to me, is the gift of of breathing and what Swami Rama had said and Tuma monks had said is this is not sacred stuff that's locked up in a monastery and you have to quit your life and go learn the teachings. We carry our breath with us every day of our lives and we can improve that breath and directly improve our immune function, our health, even the facial structure. I mean, on and on and on. And that's what's so empowering is breathing is free. And we're all doing it all the time. So why not take control of that and see where it can take you? Well, thank you for your time. And thank you for your book. I cannot. It's so fun and so insightful. And that's really hard to do. Thanks for listening to my conversation with James Nestor. For more from James, check out his book, Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art. I can't recommend it enough. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.